Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Andrew Cole tells us about the Glorious Revolution and asks whether it really was a revolution. I apologise for the poor sound quality in some places on this recording. We're going to be exploring the events of 1688-89, which was called the Glorious Revolution, where King James II of England was replaced on the throne by William of Orange and his wife Mary. The title Glorious Revolution, first used by an MP in a committee in Parliament in 1689, it was quickly adopted by William's supporters, and subsequently it was used by propaganda by William, and, and the term has stuck since. But was it actually a revolution? And that's the question we're going to be looking at today. And there's much disagreement amongst historians with different interpretations of lexicon, circumstances and the outcomes. I need to be clear about the boundaries is how and why James II was replaced on the throne by William and Mary. The years leading up to the reasons why it happened and the events afterwards, the outcomes. I'm primarily focused on England, but I will be covering Scotland and Ireland in terms of their impact on and the impact of the Glorious Revolution. And I'm also going to frame it around the powers in Europe, uh, particularly France. So was it a political revolution, which is what we typically see as a revolution, think French Revolution for as an example, a coup d'etat, an invasion and a conquering, an insignificant historical event, or a, what they call a modernising revolution, which is more around things like the Industrial Revolution, the move to democracy and so on over a longer period. I'm using two packs of cards with gambling growing. Playing cards were used for publicity and propaganda purposes in the 17th century. One of the two packs focuses on James's failings. Uh, it's both sensationalist and seditious. The other focuses on William's valour, more subtle in its propaganda. I'm not going to use all 104 cards. I'll pick out some key themes, but I'll also fill in some gaps where they've purposely avoided certain topics. Let's start with the royal players, as if this is a family matter. In the Stuarts era, England, Scotland and Ireland came together under what's called the Union of the Crowns. Charles I took an absolutist divine rights stance. His intransigence led to a conflict with Parliament, civil war and of course losing his head. He was survived by two sons, Charles the Older and James the Younger. After the 10-year Republican interregnum government ended in disarray, a Stuart king was reinstated, Charles II. And on Charles II's death, he had no legitimate son, so the crown passed to his brother James, who becomes James II of England. And James had two daughters, Mary and Anne, both brought up as Protestants at Charles II's insistence. They were due to inherit the crown. So quite straightforward there, however... There was a complication. It's not that simple. Though Charles II failed to have a legitimate son heir, he had many affairs and illegitimate children. Um, the oldest son, James Scott, later called the Duke of Monmouth, becomes a contender to James for the throne. And then there is the contention. James II's first wife, Anne, dies and he marries the Catholic Mary of Modena. They have a son who becomes James's legitimate heir, supplanting Mary and Anne. And a further complication, under pressure to show Protestant credentials, Charles II had arranged his niece Mary to marry Protestant William, Prince of Orange. William himself was also partial claim to the throne. Charles I had two daughters, one Mary Stuart marries William of Orange Senior. Their son then marries his cousin Mary. Happy families. So we can summarise the royal picture, which is part of the rivalry in this story, is between James II and his daughter Mary with her husband William. That's the royal angle. At James's succession, the relationship with the Stuart dynasty 
parliament, religious bodies and the public was at best uneasy and often fractious. The union of the crowns belied the fact that each nation had a different religious creed. Anglicans in England, but with a growing minority of nonconformists, such as Baptists, Presbyterians and Quakers. And Scotland had a Presbyterian majority, but the official church of Scotland was more aligned to Anglican doctrines. And Ireland, a massive story in its own right, was predominantly Catholic, but with much of the land and the power held by Protestant settlers. So overall, on the religious side, there were great divisions and prejudice between the faiths, and power and religion were closely entwined. Secondly, each country had a robustious, defiant parliament, often dismissed by the Stuart kings when they were displeasured. But not all was bad for James. After the failure of their interregnum, nobody had an appetite for republicanism. James's bloodline lineage was very strong. The nations were past the worst ravages of the plague. London was being rebuilt after the Great Fire, and there was no particular economic crisis or famine. Civil unrest was not uncommon, but not acute at this time. So a successful reign would rely on James staying within the boundaries and making wise choices. But instead, he becomes a liability and even a threat to nation stability. So what went wrong? The starting point, and this is an ongoing theme of James's demise, was his conversion from an Anglican to a Catholic 16 years before he even became to the throne. His conversion was kept a secret. Given widely held anti-Catholic sentiment in England, why did he do this? Well, in his exile's years, he lived in France and in Spain, serving both of their armies in close proximity to the Catholic faith. And I think he genuinely held deep spiritual beliefs drawn to the certainty of Catholicism. But that certainty was also associated with royal absolutism. Growing fears of Catholic influence at Charles's court led to the English Parliament to introduce the Test Act. All civil and military officials had to take an oath of commitment to the Church of England, including, and this is important, denouncing papist practices. James refused the oath and relinquished the Lord High Admiral title. His conversion to Catholicism was now in the public domain. Anti-Catholic bigotry in England was widespread. To give some sense of this, of one of the Palancar Pacts, 25 of the 52 all focus on Catholic mischief and failings, and many of them are entire falsehoods. But in 1678, Titus Oates alleged the Jesuits were planning the assassination of Charles II in order to bring James to the throne. Called the Popish Plot, it was totally fictitious but widely believed. Titus Oates had feigned conversion to Catholicism and claimed to have uncovered the plot. Oates was questioned by the Privy Council and was shown to be lying. But Oates had made a sworn deposition to a Westminster Justice of the Peace, who was then mysteriously murdered. This caused widespread suspicion and a wave of injustices. About 35 innocent people were executed. Eventually, Oates, a fantasist and virtuoso liar, was discredited. The panic died down and he was arrested for sedition, fined and imprisoned. But the Popish plot, despite being a false trigger, triggered the exclusion crisis, which sought to exclude James from the English, Scottish and Irish thrones, all three parliaments, because he was a Catholic. Three attempts were made in England, but each time Charles II blocked this and ultimately dissolved Parliament. Although he had concerns about James's overt Catholicism, preservation of royal lineage was the paramount priority. After the exclusion bills failed, prominent exclusionist Whigs were prosecuted, dismissed, and many were exiled. Also, unfounded rumours that the Catholics had started the Great Fire of London in 1666. And in 1681, London aldermen ordered the accusation be scribed on the city's monument, although it has now been removed, where it explicitly blamed the Catholics for the fire. Completely wrong. But a genuine event was the Rye House Plot of 1683, a plan by some English opposition leaders to assassinate both Charles and James. It failed. The government cracked down hard, and there were a lot of repressive measures. So you get the sense of this religious fever going along and destabilising effects. The Glorious Revolution historically being described as an English affair, but this underplays the influence of the neighbouring home nations and those on the continent. 
Part of the heightened fears of Catholics was France Louis XIV's revoked Edict of Nantes, unleashing a storm of persecution of Huguenots. Many fled to England with horrifying stories of suffering at the hand of their Catholic compatriots. In the Franco-Dutch Wars of the 1670s, Louis XIV demonstrated that France was the superpower of Europe. Despite a peace treaty, Louis pushed on, occupying many territories, including the Principality of Orange, William's home ground. William sought to build an alliance against France. But French expansion also restricted severely English trade. But more than this, there was a fear of Louis' invasion, or worse, when James was once crowned, an alliance between the two that would encroach on England's identity, religion and rule. There was also instability from Ireland, often represented by largely Catholic populations who had been repressed. In Scotland, religious tensions, oppressive policies and persecution had already led to the suppression of two rebellions. So both nations were seen from an English point of view as vulnerable pathways for unwelcome foreigners entering England. In February 1685, aged 51, James was crowned James II of England and James VII of Scotland. It's said he received popular support, but it's hard to judge the true picture because nearly all records that still exist were official ones. But it was supported by the majority in the three parliaments, although that was conditionally tied to declarations that James made at his coronation on preserving both the church and the establishment. And these commitments were widely disseminated in publications and through to church congregations. His initial appointments aligned with his commitments. However, he started to go publicly to mass, illegal for England's citizens. He said he was exempt being above the executive force of the law. Prior to the coronation, the government had reports that both the Duke of Monmouth, the illegitimate son of Charles II, and the Earl of Argyll were considering a rebellion. Both had lived in exile in the Low Countries. And in early 1685, they hatched a plan. Argyll was to make a diversionary attack in Scotland, whilst Monmouth would do the main rebellion in the west of England. Argyll landed in Kintyre, and Monmouth landed in, in Lyme Regis a month later. Both rebellions were quickly put down by James's army. Argyll was captured, and Monmouth's rebel army was decisively defeated at Sedgemoor. Though James's local militias were insufficient, the English army, with John Churchill, one of the senior figures, put down the rebellion. Argyll and his leaders were executed. 177 rebels were transported. Monmouth was beheaded, and there were fierce retributions in the West Country. 100 rebels were just summarily executed. 1,300 taken prisoner. A commission was sent to the West Country led by Lord Chief Justice, which became known as the Bloody Assizes. Most prisoners were sentenced to death. In the end, 250 were hung and quartered. Most other sentences were commuted to transportation. The scale of the punishment was reported as excessive, though this was probably anti-James propaganda. Such treatment was commensurate with the times. Now, at this point, the William of Orange supported James, welcoming his coronation pledges and rejection of any pro-French policy. He sent his own Scottish and English regiments to help put down the rebellion. We need to focus a bit more on James as a character. He had two objectives. First was to remove the barriers to worship and holding roles in office, particularly for Catholics. Secondly, he sought to put in place officials that were pliant to his wishes. In Scotland, Ireland, and then England, he instigated campaigns to achieve this. He gave Catholics positions of authority, promoted open Catholic worshipping, and the building of public chapels. He sanctioned books, pamphlets, and devotional manuals explaining the Catholic faith. Through each parliament, he tried to get through the legislation of liberty or conscience, or the end of the penal laws. When these failed, he issued various declarations and edicts on religious tolerance. In Scotland, the Presbyterian majority and other nonconformists mainly held anti-papist views, and so this did not work. And James alienated the Scottish Parliament and had broken the alliance between state church and the king. In Ireland, he restructured the Irish army, the Privy Council, the sheriffs and judiciary. The, most of the roles went to landed old English Catholics, rather than an indigenous majority. 
Protestants, particularly the landed interest Protestants, were alarmed. There was much legal wrangle, uprisings and violent clashes alongside a large economic slump. In England, James first gave army commissions to the Catholics in direct violation of the law. It alarmed the Tory-led Parliament, going back on his coronation commitments. Government officials that challenged these actions lost their jobs, and some leading army officers resigned their commissions, disaffection that came to bite later. Now, England traditionally had a small standing army, only ramping up in times of war, but James grew it to two and a half times its normal size, arguing that the Monmouth Rebellion showed it was needed. As well as being unpopular with the public, it had high costs, needing more funding from Parliament. James, who had already secured a good financial deal from Parliament, was high-handed in the demands for more money. So the Commons insisted that the Catholic officers be removed and resisted giving any extra funding. James was affronted by this, and one of the MPs that spoke against him was dispatched to the Tower. When the House of Lords took the same stance on the principles of Parliament's authority and protection of the Anglican Church, James just shut down Parliament once again. The Anglican Church orchestrated a press campaign to defend the true faith, with many pulpit sermons on the errors of Catholicism. Non-conformist churches largely stayed out of the spat. James, annoyed by the church's disloyalty, ordered clergy to avoid religious controversy and focus on worship instead. But that anti-Catholic preaching continued. So James ordered bishops to suspend or remove the non-compliers. But they prevaricated, so he set up a thing called the Ecclesiastical Commission, consisting of loyal bishops and senior legal officials. And it travelled the country, passing judgments and handing out punishments. Many Protestant clergy were dismissed. But James, now 53, found that using this his prerogative to grant individual roles and rulings through the ecclesiastical mission, time-consuming and too slow for his legacy of widespread acceptance of the Catholic faith. He wanted bigger, faster changes. Strangely, he carried out a poll of many officers and institutions to identify those that supported him and who were against him. But the responses were lukewarm. The survey was a public relations disaster. So he then turned to the non-conformist church leaders for support, offering them pardons, dispensations for their free worship, although there were some boundaries to that. And he set about packing Parliament with Whigs, non-conformists, favourable to his wishes. Ultimately, neither believed him and didn't trust James enough, and they had their own issues about Catholicism. James also targeted city officials and livery companies and established a committee to regulate corporations, primarily to get obstinate officials removed. Whole corporations, such as Winchester and Oxford, were dissolved. Elsewhere, James advocated foreign territory acquisition with loyal, monopolistic trading companies, where much of the revenue directly flowed to the king. This frustrated many financiers and merchants who wanted to see overseas free trade expansion, so he took on the city. At this point, James had many examples of getting his way. He'd won legal cases on expanded use of royal prerogatives, the authority to set up enforcing commissions, and the right to make individual appointments, even if they broke national laws. These legal interpretations caused much angst, but James had swung the odds in his favour by rigging the courts with favoured judges. But James' victories would be pyrrhic ones. He alienated large swathes of the establishment, but of a huge cost to his own credibility and suitability as a ruler. But it was James's later actions that are seen as a tipping point. James sought to break the Anglican power in education, Oxford, Cambridge, and the public schools. He pushed for Catholic appointments and scholarships. He failed to do this at Charterhouse School, but was successful doing impositions on most of the Oxford colleges. There was more pushback at Cambridge, for which the Vice-Chancellor then lost his job because the Ecclesiastical Commission ruled against him. But the big battle was with Maitland College, Oxford, the richest college. On its president's death, James sought his Catholic candidate's appointment. However, the college election process required its fellows to elect a Protestant. When they refused to comply, James instructed the Ecclesiastical Commission to proceed against them. They ruled that the fellow's own choice was void, but accepted that Catholics were ineligible. Cracks were starting to appear between the commissioners and James. 
So James set up yet another dedicated commission who appointed a Catholic and made sure that all the fellows lost their jobs. James had now overridden his own ecclesiastical commission. James reissued his declarations of indulgence in early 1688 on religious freedom, this time including an order of council, publicly commanding bishops to distribute the declaration and have it publicly read out by all Anglican clergy. And this up the ante, there was widespread non-compliance. Seven bishops petitioned to be excused, arguing it relied on an interpretation of the royal authority, which had already been declared illegal by Parliament. So James got them by accusing them of being seditious libel and took them to the tower. A huge crowd of supporters escorted the bishops to the court's trial. 21 noblemen appeared, offering bail if needed. But James was confident of victory. But the four presiding judges supported the bishop's position. The jury quickly returned a verdict of not guilty. This resulted in celebrations through London, actually throughout England, including, importantly, in army regiments. The decision to prosecute was a political disaster. There was one other big theme that probably led to the demise. In December 1687, James issued a proclamation that Queen Mary, his second wife, was with child. Now, Mary had previously had five children, but none had survived. Last had died five years earlier in infancy, and it was not expected that she would have more children. Unwisely, courtiers and chapel priests heralded the prospect of a Catholic son. The playing cards agitate on this, depicting both James and Mary making supplication prayers for a son and showing the glee of the priests. James Francis Edward, Prince of Wales, was born June 1688. Celebrations largely appeared to be royal encouraged events. Many institutions did not take part. And there was widespread unease at the prospect of a Catholic heir and dynasty and what it would mean for the nation. Unfounded suspicions of a fake birth started from the birth's announcement. Many ladies said that the Queen's great belly grew faster than ever observed of their own. James's daughter, Anne, speculated that Mary wore a fake belly. And another rumour was that James wasn't even the father. And they're all on the cards. The main tale, quite famous now, that the baby was still born and another child was smuggled into her bedchamber in a warming pan. Implausible as it is, the rumour took hold. It was suspicious that everyone attending the birth were Catholics or servile devotees. His Protestant daughters were both conveniently away at the time. James' political naivety, or worse, his conceit, meant that he failed to have unimpeachable witnesses at the birth, and he was slow responding to the speculation. He eventually issued 70 witness-signed affidavits, stating that they saw the birth. But even this got unpicked and ridiculed. An example is the King of Spades playing card. It reflects the Lord Chancellor's testimonial that he went to the end of the bed and saw the birth. Pretty unlikely to have happened in practice. So in summary, though James couldn't change the laws, he successfully circumvented them. His unrealistic ambitions and self-belief in this sacred right to rule meant there were large sections of each influential group that realised that something drastic had to be done. Tories saw the risk of the civil war or republicanism returning. Whigs' suspicions of autocratic royals were confirmed. Many Protestant nobles and gentry had lost lucrative official roles or army posts, and so on. And even the Catholics were split. Though many yearned for equal rights, James' methods were putting their lives at risk. But the question was what was to be done? Could drastic action jolt James to do a U-turn, or was replacement needed? An alternative, near-legitimate heir, was available in Mary and William. With the recent history of instability, deposing James was becoming the least worst option. So let's look at his overthrow. Like James, William was strongly religious, but a strong Protestant, a successful soldier with a firmness of purpose. Unlike James, he was politically astute, with strong diplomatic skills. Sovereign prince of the tiny territory of Orange, which had been besieged by France, he became the stadtholder, and that's the steward of the whole United Dutch province. Through Mary, he had good access to James, England officials and parliamentarians, but he needed to prevent an Anglo-French coalition. 
instead bring England into the anti-French alliance. William needed the Royal Navy. But James was reluctant to support William against France if it meant falling out with Louis XIV. So James did provide some financial support, but no more. From 1685, their relationship soured. James took exception to Monmouth's exiled supporters living in the Netherlands. William disliked James's Catholicizing manoeuvres in England. And though James tried to assure William that his changes were not a threat, William was unconvinced. William and his officials engaged English politicians, encouraged them to stand firm against James's actions. And there's quite a lot of testimonials on that. Through them, William received carefully guarded indications of support and the dialogue progressively increased. As a consequence of James's army appointments and official sackings, some of those officers joined the Dutch army. And Dutch forces already included English and Scottish regiments. And this became a dispute between James and William, culminating with James recalling individuals, but only on a voluntary basis. William refused a wholesale return. The first clear signs that William was considering invasion was in late 1687. French armies were occupied and struggling in continental battles and unlikely to come to James's aid. And William met English naval officers regularly and received reports of unrest in the English army, slightly distorted ones, I think. But William was cautious. Moving against James was a big risk. Though suspicious of the legitimacy of James's new baby, it was insufficient to take arms. To act, he demanded a formal and direct invitation and assurances that monarchy would be retained, cautiously accepting that Parliament would have a greater role. Paradoxically, this commitment to royalty increased his support. Some Tories came across to his side, placated by his reassurance. He received private letters of support, including one from Churchill, which were useful but insufficient. Meanwhile, William secured more army, navy and money in Holland. He avoided declarations and an intent to take the English throne. William was able to build the invasion force without attracting too much suspicion. The French and English actually doubted his intentions and did limited preparations. I think that's a bit dubious. An invitation letter arrived in June 1688, signed by seven distinguished figures, two Tories and five Whigs. They were landed magnets, two disaffected earls from the army, a bishop and two from the navy. They've become known as the Immortal Seven. The letter talked of England in peril with assurances that William and Mary would be supported by 19 out of 20 of its citizens. Goodness knows how they knew that. The letter urged William to act before supporters and the forces were further removed from their posts. Financial support also arrived, particularly from disgruntled merchants and financiers. They gave £200,000 to his cause, equivalent to £400 million today. And William did indeed act quickly. The invasion force was ready in mid-October, but bad weather caused the ships to scatter and they returned to port. The weather also hampered the Royal Navy attacking force. Their ability to engage the Dutch was highly dependent on the winds. At sea, the opposing warship fleets were about of equal size but William had 200 transport ships that needed to be protected. James was unable to immobilize his whole fleet, which if he had done, it would have been able to crush that task force. William wanted to avoid a major naval battle. Even if he won, it could galvanize the English against him. He had appointed an Englishman as head of the fleet. The instruction though was to protect the transport rather than engage the Royal Navy directly, a tricky task. With good tactical use of easterly winds, the Dutch fleet avoided the English Navy in the Dover Straits, and the fleet landed in Torbay. The English fleet hung back, awaiting reinforcements and favourable wind conditions. And there's been quite a lot of speculation that the Royal Navy officers quietly supported William, purposely reluctant to engage. William landed 15,000 troops, much more than Monmouth's 4,000. It included a few thousand Englishmen and Scotsmen, some holding senior ranks. William also brought arms for 20,000 Englishmen. In contrast, James had 40,000 men and raised five new regiments from Scotland and Ireland. His forces, however, were spread across England. James was very short of cash at this point. And the city failed to give him loans, but Louis XIV did provide some financial aid. 
James gathered his forces at Salisbury Plain. There were rumours and much hope amongst Catholics that a French fleet would arrive and support James, but this didn't happen. William recognised that a stained bloody war would be a catastrophe. A large foreign force killing Englishmen would rally people against him and make his position as their saviour untenable. It was unclear to everyone how this would go. Cleverly, William declared four declarations of reasons to secure support. One to the English public, one to the Scottish public, one to the English army and one to the English navy. With different emphases, they said that his aims were to preserve their laws, liberties and customs, not a foreign overthrow. And rather than directly blaming James for the situation, he attacked his evil counsellors. The declaration played on religious fears, here to defend the Protestants from popish oppression. They made clear that William would preserve both monarchy and a parliament that would not be dismissed by a king. The documents were probably drafted by one of the Immortal Seven and modified by exile Whig advisers living in Holland. And there was no evidence of much diplomatic effort from the Dutch in terms of writing it, a strong indication that the agenda was being shaped, at least in good part, in England. Momentum was shifting to William. Some nobles and senior officers rallied to the king's cause, but many were false declarations. Within three weeks, William had swelled his ranks by 12,000, though these were mainly untrained volunteers. What he needed was deserters from James's army. A week later, large desertions started to happen. Two horse regiments left Salisbury Plain at night to join William. This was a significant blow, but more came later, with Churchill and two other prominent James supporters switching sides. And then others followed. Like mercenaries, they picked the likely winner. The desertions at this point weren't crippling in terms of numbers, but the effect on army morale was significant. Folklore has the revolution was bloodless, Macaulay and many others. 19th century historians asserted it was a marvellous triumph of English reform without needing violence, unlike, importantly, the continental neighbours later. A romantic ideal that the English are different, even better. There was bloodshed, albeit limited in comparison to later continental revolutions. Without going into the detail of the military manoeuvres, early on William had made steady but actually not spectacular progress. In Cheshire and Derbyshire, nobles pledged allegiance to William, raised forces and headed south. Northumberland and East Anglia forces followed. Most of the pledges were linked to the conditional of the free parliament. But many regional leaders stayed passive. Extra and Bristol were taken by William with virtually no bloodshed, but there was bloodshed in Reading and Wincanton, but no repetition of the levels that were in the Civil War. Importantly, the public sat and watched. This was no public-led insurrection. It was hardly surprising. The outcome was uncertain. People had memories of the foul Monmouth Rebellion and the bloody retributions thereafter. There were outbreaks of anti-Catholic rioting in London, not uncommon. Some local officials were handed out of office. And as William's victory became more likely, senior figures in James's court and priests were captured or went on the run. The playing cards berates these figures as cowardly and dishonest. Now, there are a few historians that argue that grassroots action collectively amounted to insurrection, but most actually see it as localised retributions. After William's landing, James' more canny ministers realised that he could ha would have to go back to honouring his coronation commitments and gave him such advice. He made some concessions but refused the fundamentals. As William half won, James retreated to Andover. Two officers that dined with him deserted that next day. James lost his nerve. Although he had a good military track record, he didn't know now who to trust. James first arranged for the Queen and Prince of Wales to escape to France via Portsmouth, but this went awry. The route was unsafe, with refusals from senior figures that he thought would give him support. Mary and Child headed back to London and later slipped through Gravesend to France. James suddenly made drastic pledges, recalling Parliament, promising elections and withdrawing some edicts, but it was too late and it wasn't believed. So James fled, in part because he believed that the country without his monarchy would lead to chaos and people would call him back. But this was a dire miscalculation. The flight was reported as cowardice, unfitting of a king. And his departure was a debacle. 
his party was stopped by seamen at Faversham who were looking out for escaping Catholics. A military escort took him back to London. There he was cheered and the bells rang. Now, William's supporters downplayed this, but it was real. Celebrators probably assumed that James's return meant he would now be more adherent, no longer ill-advised by those evil counsellors. But now who was the legitimate monarch? William was surprised by the London welcoming. It didn't fit his intentions. So he orchestrated a message to James that he should leave the city to avoid disorder. Rochester was the agreed venue. There the security was lax, and it was clear to James that William was either encouraging him to escape or he was going to be killed. He duly departed to France. James, out of the country, paved the way for William to enter the capital. All good celebration on these cards. He too received a rapturous reception with bells and bonfires. Us English do like pageantry. There are formal delegations from the church, the judiciary and parliament. But there was an underlying nervousness of what the transition meant for the church, state and nationhood, including those of Scotland and Ireland. Mary and William were crowned joint monarchs in Westminster Abbey in April 1689. Even then, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who typically presides over the coronation, refused to do so because he continued to support James. Did William always seek the crown with the fig leaf of his wife's lineage's credibility? It's been hotly debated. There's little evidence that he'd taken long-term plans to replace James. Politicians had envisioned initially that William's presence would force James to change his policies and become more compliant. William certainly acted quickly when he had the opportunity, when James had absconded. But William's declarations and early actions as king belie the fact of an overthrow or an oppressive intent. His priority was to secure England resources in the alliance against France. So that's the events. What were the outcomes or consequences of this? To judge the glorious revolution, we need to understand what actually it meant. So who now ruled? After much political machinations and legal manoeuvrings, William and Mary were granted a throne because James's flight was deemed as abdication. He departed and broken his contract. It was official. He had not been deposed. He'd unkinged himself was one of the phrases used. The biggest change was the shift of power from royalty to parliament. There was some wrangling between William and parliament and within the parliament, as always. But the fundamentals of who made the law and drew taxes were tightened up. The royal prerogative and the ability to make appointments was curtailed. William was true to his declaration. Parliament moved from irregular sittings at the king's bequest to self-control with regular two-chamber sessions. But in the areas of such as foreign policy and declarations of war, the king had the powers. Parliament's role was less clear, other than money. Though not having a large standing army was decreed, this largely became epidemic. England was at war for large periods for the next century. The biggest single power play was the control of money. Parliament made it, and this is an important one, that in England and later Britain, the throne would never have sufficient wealth to again threaten Parliament's supremacy. But you could look at all of this and take the view, as many historians have, that the problems hark back to Charles II's instatement. If boundaries had been clearer then, was the 1688 events even necessary? What about the implications on foreign affairs? The appointment of William effectively came with the commitment to join the Continental Alliance against powerful France. In what is now called the Nine Years' War, the military campaigns were complex, bloody and expensive, with no real winners. France's territorial ambitions were curtailed and its economy was weakened. Holland achieved firm borders but was financially exhausted. And England had depleted finances, but its naval power was proven. It had more than doubled in size in this period, becoming more important in, in European affairs, and it formed a platform for later to expand into worldwide trading ambitions. Now, normally included within the Nine Years' Wars is the Williamite Wars in Ireland and the Jacobite Risings in Scotland, and this is quite controversial. Some historians, particularly modern ones, treat these as part of the Glorious Revolution rather than as a consequence of the wider European encounter. I think both perspectives can legitimately be argued.
James II and his family were given refuge by Louis XIV, not surprisingly, giving him financial and diplomatic support. James attempted to recover his throne. He landed an army in Ireland with 6,000 French troops. James, deputy in Ireland, had raised an army of about 36,000, although many were ill-trained and poorly equipped. Today is not the deep time for the detail of the events in Ireland, but the battles were won and lost on both sides. In the end, 15,000 English Dutch reinforcements and a stand made by the Ulster Protestants, which they celebrate regularly, rebellion was put down and James fled. Events in Ireland were accompanied by Jacobite risings in Scotland. They suffered heavy losses in securing victory at Kilcranny in July 1689, including the loss of their leader. But really, James's main objective was to retake England. Scotland and Ireland for him were gateways rather than the goal. In contrast, Louis XIV saw them as an opportunity to divide English, Scottish and Dutch forces from his priority, which was the Low Countries. James was a spent force. After his death, his son was recognised by Louis XIV as the rightful heir to the Three Crowns, later called the Old Pretender. In 1708 and 1715, he also failed to reclaim the throne through flawed rebellions. A quick mention of the 1707 Union with Scotland. The prime driver for the English was the continuing fear of a French invasion through Scotland. The Scottish regions for the Union were predominantly to do with economic plight, not really directly linked to the Dorus Revolution. So one unintended consequence of England and then Britain's engagement in these subsequent wars was a major overhaul of the financial system in England. Taxes, debt sourcing and expenditure control needed to fund these wars. This fueled the growth of the London financial services. And a recent controversial book by a guy named Pincus, it makes a very strong case that contends that the changes made by the revolution brought about a modernising revolution, the foundation of a global trading empire. You can take your own view on that. What about changes in people's rights and representation? If you put to one side the royals, the faces that had power and influence remained the same. The same fame families, the same hierarchy. The Bill of Rights of 1689 was much vaunted by leading 19th century historians as a landmarking English progression to democratic government. But when you read it, very little is actually new. The first of half the documents largely are rant against the failings of James. The remainder mostly restates existing principles with curbs on arbitrary power. A few new elements were often vague. That elections of members of parliament ought to be free brought no material improvements in elective practices or suffrage extension. There was little on individual liberty and rights, nothing on reforms that were seen in the revolutions in, in other nations later, such as meritocracy, welfare and reform. And lastly, what about religion? William's declaration as part of the invasion set out that all Protestants, be they Anglican or non-conformists, had the right to have freedom of worship and to hold office. He was personally against papists and other religions, holding posts in the judiciary, government or army, but accepted that they should be allowed to have open free worship. Once crowned, he pushed for this expansion of religious tolerance. What came was the Toleration Act, but Parliament and the Anglican Church resisted their holding of office. Non-conformists could only hold official roles through a practice called occasional conformity, which was just a fudge. Denominations that re refused to swear such oaths remained outsiders, such as the Quakers, and the Catholics remained untrusted outcasts. For all of James's misjudged promotion of Catholicism, it can be argued that his policy could have brought about religious tolerance, equal rights in society, irrespective of one's faith. But religious allegiance defined individuals and the nation. In this sense, James was the revolutionary and Parliament was the reactionary. So, was it significant? I think it is significant for these four reasons. And it's one of the rare times in a thousand years that actually somebody became king what the king maker, or the queen, was from abroad, so that's one. There was actually limited bloodshed, which compared to other revolutions is not true. Though I'm being really clear, in Scotland and Ireland, there was a lot of bloodshed. And so if you include that in the scope, as some historians do, that's a different reading.
There was a power shift between Crown and Parliament that endured. It stayed, which the interregnum didn't really. And it caused our Parliament to sort itself out to have a system that continued to work. I would say that it's not insignificant. I'd also argue that it was not a foreign invasion and conquest. Though the leadership changed, it needed a foreign army landing on English shores. There's two reasons I don't think that's the case. There was just too much home involvement, in my view. William was invited by prominent English and engaged extensively with British figures in advance on the plans. A good part of the army was Englishmen and Scotsmen. And there was widespread army desertion from James to William. And, and I don't think they saw it as they were joining an enemy. So I think that was another reason. And actually, in the end, Mary, second in line to the throne, became queen. The other reason is there was actually minimal in subsequent imposition of foreign diktats, which is typically what you get when you get an invasion. We didn't get much stripping of national assets, with the exception of one, back to the uh, victorious nation. There wasn't really a period of tyrannical rule, which you typically get on subjugated people. And William largely abided by the Parliament's rights to have supremacy. So my argument is that it may have been a foreign invasion, but it certainly wasn't a conquest. I don't think it was a modernising revolution. Typically, that under the definition, it takes many decades. And we're talking about like the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, the Information Revolution, which we seem to be living with. So when I was at university, we had the information revolution in the late 70s. So I'm going, hang on a minute, when does it end? So my reasons for it not being a modernising racial, it was just too quick. It only took five months from the point of the invasion to crowning. And it was more about preservation rather than reform. Aside from the royal power curbing, the authority remained with the same people. There was no major shift as a consequence of this on industry, agriculture and economic change. The Bill of Rights largely reaffirmed what the English already had. And the Union of Scotland, I don't think, was caused by the Glorious Revolution. It wasn't the trigger. But it was an event in a modernising revolution. And I think that's where I would place the emphasis. There were many other things that had to happen as well in order to get democracy in place here. There is a good case to argue the events are consistent with a coup d'etat with a strange nuance the incumbent's ruler was overthrown by a relatively small group, and they were people that already had political and military power. It was very quick, which coup d'etats are. 38 days from landing to James's fleeing. Uh, force was needed, but it actually was quite limited, again, which is a characteristic of a coup d'etat. The atypical feature is it needed a foreign force to make it happen. And actually, some modern coup d'etats have that same feature. People seem to go across the border and kick people out. There was not sufficient capability to throw James out from forces within England, and Monmouth somewhat proved that. So that's my argument for it not being a modernising revolution. The tricky one, could it be upgraded from a coup d'etat to a revolution? And, and there is a lot of debate around this. The good news is there's lots of great stuff around on what you define as a revolution. Of course, they don't all tie up. But these are the six characteristics, I think, of a revolution, having bled together the various books and stuff. You need a deep-rooted grievance from both eminent people and the public. There needs to be public insurrection as part of that overthrow, participation of those not holding authority. There is nearly all big revolution. I mean, you can use the French Revolution as a model, but it's not the only one. Considerable violence and bloodshed. There are no real figures that's what draws the line of how, what is classed that. The protagonists need to have a revolutionary zeal. They want something new, a new principle, new ideas to be put into place. And often ideas yet unproven. There's a fantastic book by a guy named Prince, I think it was in the 1938, he wrote it, which actually looked at revolutions and looked at the characteristics of the life cycle. You know, this happens and this happens and this happens and so on. It's a really good book. So the question is, does this revolution follow that pattern? And the last one is it leads to the outcomes are new forms of policy or new forms of machinery of government. Those are the six traits that come again and again in these books of defining a revolution. So this is my scoring of those as to, in this case, the glorious revolution, Definitely the top one, everyone was fed up with James and would prefer him not to be there, I think is a sort of oversimplistic answer. So I think that one's a tick. There wasn't much public insurrection. They sat on their hands. There wasn't that much bloodshed, if you exclude Ireland and Scotland. 
there wasn't revolutionary zeal. Again, there's, there's quite a few books or two or three historians that argue that James was the revolutionary in this, but everyone else was reactionary. It definitely does not follow the life cycle of other revolutions. It doesn't have that pattern at all. It did lead to radical form in the sense of parliament, but beyond that, the machinery of government and the policies were largely the same. Therefore, I think it's a bit bold to call it a political revolution if you use this criteria. So what was it then, when we look back in summary? It's closest fit to a coup d'etat. A more accurate would be England's glorious anti-revolution. It was trying to preserve something rather than have something new. But that was not a propaganda title that you could easily publish. It was an event in a modernising revolution, and it did help towards democracy. But there were too many other things that needed to happen later to really move to that. Overall, it was preservation of something that had been intended, but was unfinished business. And this is where I'm going back to the restoration of Charles II. If only the, the Parliament had stood firm, and the Tories particularly at that point in time gave a lot of free range to Charles II, and it gradually got worse and worse, and James II exploited it even further. If that had not happened, the Parliament had stood firm, then actually none of this might have been needed at all. The title doesn't really matter. It's a slogan. I'm going to use that horrible word B, Brexit. They get their own language. Once you use that word, it gets a life of its own. There's an emotion attached to it, and the public will get behind it or not. And having such slogans in itself are really useful. So though it may not have been a revolution, the title has justified in the sense of having an identity. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.